0: Welcome to CPF Firewire, a podcast from California Professional Firefighters, where we discuss a wide range of issues affecting firefighters, our unions, our families, and the communities we serve. Hello and welcome to another episode of CPF Firewire, the monthly podcast from the California Professional Firefighters. I'm Brian Rice. I'm the president of CPF. And this month, we're going to talk about suicide in the fire service. It's a really difficult subject. We all know that as firefighters, uh, we come face-to-face with situations that most people, they can't even imagine in their nightmares. And sometimes these events can result in physical injuries, but more often they, they leave us with scars that are below the surface. And as we've come to realize, these hidden wounds can be just as deadly and and just as as crippling as a physical injury. This past year, more firefighters committed suicide than died traumatically on the job. Over the past six weeks alone, three California firefighters have died by their own hand. And as we enter Suicide Awareness Month in September, I'm joined today by a brother firefighter who's made suicide awareness part of his life's work on the job. Um, Alex Hamilton, welcome, Alex. Thank you. Alex is an assistant chief with the Oxnard Fire Department and also a former executive board member uh, with the Oxnard Firefighters Local 1684. Alex is a trained suicide intervention specialist. He's developed a program in Oxnard that has brought suicide awareness training to every member of the department and every member of Local 1684. Alex, I just want to thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And kind of we've been talking a little bit, but I'd, I'd really like to start. Alex, what got you started on on a path to the fire service? What made you want to be a firefighter? Uh, Brian, thank you. So I actually, as you'll be able to tell pretty quickly by the
1: accident, I, accent, I grew up in Australia and uh, I was actually on my way to becoming a, a professional chef in Australia, living on a, on a small island that had a year-round population of about 5,000, a summertime population of about 60,000. There really wasn't a lot to do on this island. So I actually uh, joined the local volunteer fire brigade um, out there at the time. And I think I was the youngest volunteer by about 35 years. What year um, is that? That was 1997. Okay. And so anyway, I, I joined the volunteer fire brigade. We had, I think we, we ran about, uh, I don't know, about a hundred calls a year in total. And, but it the, I remember the very first car, the very first call I got was a car fire, and it was the most exciting thing. And I was like, you know, I don't know that this chef gig is going to be for me. So, uh, at the time, I uh, the the local fire service wasn't hiring. There was there was a period of sort of five, six, maybe eight years where they just didn't bring new people on board. Um, and so, uh, one of my mentors at the time said, "Go travel for a little bit. Go go explore the world, and you can come back to this career. You're young, and so." I, I took that advice and, and uh, sort of 10 years later, ended up uh, in the United
0: States and married a Californian girl and, and joined the fire service. And um, joined the Oxnard Fire Department. Correct. And what year did you get hired in Oxnard? Uh, that was 2005. 2005. How did you become aware of the mental and emotional toll that the job can take on us? You know, for, for the longest time, I actually, I, I'd kind of heard about
1: how it can impact us, uh, mentally or emotionally. And for the longest time it, um, I would go on calls and not bothered by it. And I, I worked at a truck company for a long time in Oxnard and as a firefighter and we'd go on traffic collisions and, and see some pretty gruesome stuff. Never bothered me. And so I, I for a while, I just thought I was different, uh, you know, or maybe we were a different breed as firefighters, um, Thanksgiving day in 2011, that, that kind of changed for me where we went on a, uh, on a, it was a, a bicycle versus vehicle uh, traffic collision um, that resulted in the fatality of a six year old boy. And at the time I had uh, a boy that was about to turn six. And so it, it impacted me pretty heavily, uh, that incident. And that was my first kind of um, look into to that, that toll. And it was actually, um, I ended up getting some, getting some help and, and getting through that, that incident. But uh, one of the people that was on the crew with me that day um, came to me uh, probably six months later or eight months later. And he said, just not coping with life anymore. And at the time, we didn't, we didn't have any sort of support system for, for behavioral health. And so that was kind of the, the oh shit moment, if you like,
0: that we needed to um, make some changes. And I'm just going to take a little bit of a stab in the dark here, because I think we all have kind of those incidents that it's kind of that first time that it, it, it hits you. And and I'm going to guess, had trouble sleeping, had trouble concentrating, didn't have an appetite, pissed off, irritable at the family. Yeah. You know, we we all go through that. And I tortured my kids when every, anytime they'd get near a bike or a skateboard, I'm
1: like, get a helmet on,
0: you know, like I, I yeah. was like, yeah, super reactive to, to all things like that. And did that, that first experience that you had with, um, whether it was peer, w- w- counseling, what, you know, back then it could have been CISM, it, it, um, it could have been an EAP program. Did you find that that unlocked some keys for you going forward, gave you some keys to the lock going forward? You know, my experience at the time, uh, we, we didn't do anything.
1: Um, as 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 an agency, as a crew, we re, we we sort of talked about it, and that that was it. Um, and then and then just kind of moved on. Um, so I, I actually went outside um, to get get myself some assistance, and, um, and and that was the way I dealt with it. It was interesting. It, it it took a little while to sort of get get to sleeping again, and and that kind of thing. And and uh, fast forward, just a quick story. Fast forward about five years, I was working on a project. It was actually a bicycle um bicycle safety video that we were working on and what we wanted to do was profile a case of of uh, an injury or death um, where where a helmet was was would have been impactful and so we were looking at lots of these cases that happened in Ventura County and and this case for for um, Anthony Martinez jr was was a little boy's name uh, this case came up and or someone sent me a clip of uh, of his father talking and uh, and watching that clip it 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 was sent me right back down that that road again where I just could not sleep and it was it was like I was back that same Thanksgiving Day in 2011. So it's it, it's interesting how the, how the mind works and how you how you can hold on to some of those
0: things. It 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 just listening, Alex, just listening to that it, it brings me back. I was a young firefighter and we actually had a SIDS death and what was really odd about it is they were twins. And so when when we got there, um, started CPR. And I, I mean, it's a, a vivid memory, the mother asking me if her little one was going to be OK. And, and what she told me, what I said was, um, no, this is, this is not good. Do you understand what we're doing? And, and we went through the call. And I went through the misery of it and didn't, didn't really. Um, I sought a little bit of counseling, but not enough. Six years later, I was mowing my lawn, and a car pulls up and stops, and a lady gets out, and you're having one of those moments where you're going, something's going on here, but I don't know what. She got out and got out with a six-year-old girl, and it I had never seen that family since or before that, and it just about put me on my knees. I knew exactly who it was and why they were stopping. That's what kind of started me, me on the journey that y- y- you have got you can't keep living like this because you don't know what's going to float up and when it's going to do that it, it kind of brings me to my next question to you what drew you to suicide not not only counseling but prevention in the fire, fire service what what got you to where you are today
1: so it 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 started once once i had that that moment where someone came to me and says listen i i need help and and we didn't have any good answers. Um, I was executive. Um, I, I was a secretary treasurer of um, 1684 at the time, and realised that we needed to do something different. We we had a CISM program. It it really wasn't um, embraced at all uh, by the membership, and so so everyone would do anything they could to get out of it. Um, and so I started looking around at, at options uh, made a friend in, in Frank Lido from FDNY mm-hmm. and that's where we started looking at a peer support program and so we we ended up moving towards a peer support program but w- within that time frame we actually had a couple of members that that had uh, suicide attempts um, and they would actually reached out to to some of our other guys for assistance while they're actively in a plan. And, and so we, we realized that if we we're gonna to go to a peer support program, that we needed to train our, our folks better to deal with those kind of situations. It was actually Frank Lido that um, introduced me to uh, the Living Works suicide prevention Model, and and once we were introduced to that, myself and, and two of the other peers um, that we had chosen uh, went to the training, and and it's it, uh, it's been a game changer for us uh, to be able to all of our peers um, get some uh, two days of training, and then our rank and file personnel get get three hours of training, and it just um, the way it allows our people
0: to to have conversations with each other is. Um huge what did you as your program developed? Um, I mean, we know why it's important, but as your program developed um, and you started to have interaction with the members, even in a training e- even in a training se- session, what kind of things did you did you and um, uh, the members of sixteen eighty four what kind of things did you learn or come to light to you that you just didn't realize before? Do you know, I think um,
1: one of the biggest things is, and and this, in part, is the, the strength of a peer support program, was that it's not it's not just the calls. Um, although, obviously, the the calls have significant impact, and there's things that we can recall in an instant. But it's it it's the shift work, it's the lack of sleep, it's issues going on at home, it's overtime slows down or picks up, and you you're you're at the station. For, for way too long, or you know there 's all these other things that we we started to learn, and then um, just being able to for our members to be able to connect the dots, other members are going through exactly the same thing and and so being able to to empathize with each other on those things um,
0: really allowed to, the conversation to open up it i mean it 's a really difficult conversation to have. Among firefighters, um, if you're a peer supporter, uh, you have some training there. but talk to me kind of about the difficulty that, I mean you've encountered prior to the program that you instituted, and then how has that changed after? I mean there's nothing harder than asking or talking to a member that possibly has suicidal has suicidal thoughts what have you what have you seen? Change from the difficult the difficult period prior to training and then after what what's opened some doors for your members? You know, to be, to be perfectly honest, I think it still is a very difficult conversation,
1: and and even even today, and we've we've been doing this for for about five years now, and and every new uh, group that comes into every new academy that we have in Oxnard goes through the three hour suicide awareness class. Um, go go to three hours. Give me the. The three-hour suicide awareness class. Oh, three-hour. Got it, got it. Yeah. Your and, accent uh, got me a little there, brother. <laughs> okay. Uh, but it's... Um, so it, it's always going to be a difficult conversation, even with the training. And so in in my career, I've asked um, three of my uh, brother firefighters if they're thinking about suicide. And, and every one of those times, I've had this enormous amount of anxiety. And, you know, it's that whole analogy about the duck, you know, you're kicking your legs frantically underneath, but on top, you're you're looking calm. It's, it's kind of that feeling where, where inside you're just all in turmoil and in knots, but you need to get the question out. And, and each one of those times for me, the, the answer was no. And, and I believe them. Um, but it's, uh, it's not always that way. And so, so even with training, it's always going to be
0: a difficult conversation. In, I mean, we know this as firefighters, we've all been on suicide calls um, in the public and gender, age, we, we've we've seen a lot of them. Do you think that we as firefighters and, and being around death, but definitely being around suicide, can that be impactful on what kind of thoughts that we have, the problems we're going, we may be going through? Does that does that add to a firefighter's load um, when they're dealing with behavioral health issues? Do you know, I I,
1: I think, yes, it can. But I think the, the bigger issue is that um, I, sometimes the, the thoughts of suicide can kind of creep up on somebody. And as a firefighter, we, we're often going on people that are in crisis. And so if I can take a step back for a second, if if you consider... Um, suicide risk, kind of like the pain scale. Like you ask somebody if they're in pain, zero to 10, 10 being the worst pain you've ever felt. Well, the risk of suicide kind of works the same way. So if you're a nine or a 10, you're actively in a plan, right? You, you, you want to kill yourself. Right. right. Whereas if you're a one or a two, you maybe just need to talk to somebody. You know, at, at like a five or a six, maybe you need a referral to a clinician. But it, so if you look at it like- Um, suicide risk on that scale. I think one of the issues that we find is that firefighters will often go on calls of people that are a nine or a 10. And so they, they may be having a hard time. They may be dealing with stuff. They may be wondering what life's all about, but they will look at those, those um, patients that they go on and say, I'm not that Mm. I'm not that. So I'm not at risk of suicide. And I think that's where sometimes it can, it can kind of creep up on you because because they see them, they don't see themselves as that person. Those calls that they go on, um, and then I, I think the other thing is, when we're on those calls, and and I know I've done it through my entire career, and I think most of the, most of the people in my department have done the same thing. Whereas, um, are you thinking about hurting yourself? Um, are you trying to hurt yourself when we're on those those suicidal subject calls? And. And really, you're asking that question to figure out, do they need an ER or do they need- um, Mental health uh, assistance. Mental health assistance. And, but asking that question of somebody you know or love is a way different question. And asking, if, asking someone you know or love, if they're thinking about hurting themselves, they can honestly answer, they can be at risk of suicide and honestly answer the question, no, they're not thinking about hurting themselves because they're thinking about ending the pain. And that's where, and part of the training that we talk about is you need to ask a direct question. And so, because it, and, and even when we do role plays in the training, people have a really, really hard time saying the word suicide. If they're thinking about a family member or a co-worker they're close to, saying the word suicide is,
0: it's hard to say. It really is. It, it, it it's not natural. Um, it's not natural to look a brother or sister in the eye and, and ask them even suicides kind of putting it nicely. Are you, are you thinking of killing yourself? Are you, have you got a plan? And, and even, even just in this setting, when we're talking about that, I have a very unnatural and uncomfortable feeling about it. And it kind of goes back. It it certainly goes back to me that, that the training that you're involved in how critically important that is, is it kind of, it, this goes to the next thing I wanted to ask, which I think is, it seems kind of dumb to me. Warning signs and our brothers and sisters, um, what should we watch for? And there's a part of me that, that I, on my job here in Sacramento, I've known seven members that have killed themselves over the course of a 30 year career. And at least four of them it was shocking what do we watch for what do we watch for in our brothers and sisters what are some of the red flags that that we as firefighters need need to pay attention to um with our brothers and sisters on the job right
1: first of all i think it's um unbelievable that you you know seven seven members from your own own Mm -hmm. agency that have suicided over the last 30 years that's that's radical um uh, and so it's and, and just as you mentioned, four of those were, were shocking. I think every single person that that I've ever interacted with within the fire service who's, who's talked about somebody that they've lost to suicide has said, I, n- "I never would have thought it. Never yeah. would have seen it coming." And and so so one of the things that we talk about in the class is um, someone at risk of suicide. Uh, we we call them invitations, and so you, they're, they're inviting you into their mental state. And how do they do that? They invite you in by by the way they talk, by the way they act, potentially by their life events or or how their mood is. And so so what do those things look like? It it could be that they're they're withdrawing from the from from the rest of the crew. Um, it it could be they're going through financial or or um, uh, marital issues. They uh, they they're talking. They're sort of. They care less about things. Not that they're careless. Although careless behaviour could be one of those warning signs. And so there's, it 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 really runs the gamut. Um, but oftentimes statistics tell us that at some point somebody's going to say something. Uh, to indicate that they, they're at risk of suicide. Trying to pick up on those little cues though is incredibly difficult. And that's we we're never gonna save everybody even with the training. But if we can get people more alert to, to what those warning signs might be. Um, I, to give a really quick example, um, uh, Rigo Landeros, he was the fire chief for Fillmore Fire Department. It's a small combination department out on the east side of our county. Um, he suicided January, uh, two years ago. Um, I actually spoke to him two days before he suicided. We were working on a, on a grant project together and, uh, uh, I replayed that conversation over and over and over in my head and trying to think if there was something that I missed in that conversation,
0: he knew I'd done that training. I was going to ask you, did he, he know that He, he knew your involvement and your awareness? Yeah. Um, I, I don't, I
1: honestly can't say whether or not I missed something or not. Um, I know though, um, at his funeral, he's, um, one of his best friends got up and spoke and talked about the day that, that Rigo suicided. Um, and he, he said that they ran into each other in the street. And, and this friend of Rigo, they have been friends for 50 years, maybe more. And they had a small conversation with each other, uh, little interaction, you know, both busy, got some stress going on, got the places to go. As they went their separate ways, uh, Rigo said, turned to his friend and said, "I love you, brother." And the guy said it made the hair on the back of his neck stand up because he's like, "I've known Rigo fifty years; he never said anything like that to me." And 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 that that may have been Rigo's goodbye, or it may have been the life side of Rigo saying, "Please help." And so sometimes um, those invitations that we talk about can come out in, in strange ways. That's just one example, and sometimes they can come out in really uninviting ways too. So really. Although we call it an invitation, it may not be very inviting.
0: Right. Um, so, how 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 do you talk to a brother, or sister, firefighter, who's who's at risk of suicide? I, I mean, you you you've put the question to them. They've they've given you an answer that now I've got a risk here. How? What's next steps? How do you how do you how do you talk to them? How do you steer them? Well, so first of all, if we just talk about the
1: question a little bit, um, because it's, uh, and you're right, um, if, if suicide's too hard to say, are you thinking about suicide? Are you thinking about killing yourself? That, that'd that be perfectly appropriate too, and probably more natural. But to get to that question, so you, you're coming from a place of empathy, right? Mm-hmm. So you're coming from a place of like... Um, I see you doing this. I see you withdrawing from the crew. You've been saying that you've got problems at home. Like if, if you can introduce the question by saying, listen, I'm seeing these different things in you. Sometimes that means you're thinking about suicide. Are you thinking about cu- killing yourself? And so you can kind of disarm the question because you're providing the justification for asking the question, right? Um, and so, but if you get, if you get somebody that, that says yes to that question, the first thing is thank you for sharing with me that that must be really difficult right because suicide grows the idea of suicide grows in isolation and darkness so so for somebody to to outwardly say yes there's there's probably going to be some sense of relief to get it out but if they, if someone says yes it it really depends if you have a peer support program and you have peers that you can call on um, at that point th- this person this person at risk has put their faith in you to be able to help them. Yeah. Um, if you don't have um, department resources that you can get a hold of easily, my recommendation is the the suicide prevention hotline one eight hundred two seven three talk one more time one 273 talk. Thank you uh, that number, um, right then and there between the two of you call that number, put it on speakerphone, and have a conversation with them. That note, like it, that number is just, it's, it's sort of everyone's saving grace. If you don't, f- if you don't feel comfortable having the conversation, if you don't, uh, feel equipped to have the conversation, call that number and, and put the phone between you and put it on speaker phone. Uh, Another really quick example is I was out of training at the beginning of this year. Um, uh, one of those, one of my members called me and said, "My son is threatening suicide. I don't know what to do." I was out on the east coast. There were like I was a long way away, and and I said, "That exactly that. Um, get get on the phone, call the national suicide prevention hotline, and and have a conference call." Um, and that's what they did. And and the they're in a much better place now, and their son is doing great. It's
0: good news. It, um, I know, as you, um, you know, if somebody approaches you or you approach someone, I, I've always looked at it, it. Even doing union work, you you have to earn the right to be heard. But it, but if you've got somebody that that's um, you know their behavior's off, you know that something's wrong, and and you you need to. You need to kind of get to that question. Any, any tips or experiences that might help with that?
1: Honestly, not really. Um, like it, it is going to be really uncomfortable to ask the question, um, but, but you, you, you're asking it because you care and that's something to keep in mind. And, and the other thing to remember is if you're, seeing, if you're seeing things in somebody that makes you think that there may be a risk there, but you don't feel comfortable doing it, bring somebody else into the conversation like reach out it, it doesn't have to be all on you and the other thing is you could people can have all these risk factors and be going through all this stuff and and you ask them if they're thinking about killing themselves and they say no and if you believe them your work is done you've yeah. checked that box and so we don't want to make the, you know we don't, we don't want everyone to be walking around, like after they go through the training and, and everyone you look at is at risk of suicide, right? right, like it, right. It, it's not that, like, it doesn't have to be that big a deal. Um, but, but if, if you think they are, ask the question or get somebody to, to reach out to them.
0: Got it. How important is it for firefighters to see post-traumatic stress and suicide as a health and safety issue, just like a physical injury? You know, it's it, it's really
1: interesting. I I recently saw uh, Ben Vernon, uh, the San Diego City firefighter, that was uh, he was stabbed on an EMS call, and and he gives a he gives a great presentation. But he talks about how um, he didn't believe he had PTSD. You know, he he talks about how you know soldiers go to war and come come home with PTSD. He's, he says I I had a four second fight, and doesn't it. I didn't get PTSD from that. So he, he, he was kind of sort of arguing against it. But uh, when you look at the criteria for PTSD, three of the eight we already have by virtue of being first responders. And so you're already like three-eighths of the way down that, that road of, of PTSD. Uh, and, and unfortunately, because of what you were talking about, the lack of sleep and, and the hyper arousal and those things, that's, that's where you get to the point of... Considering suicide, so they they absolutely go hand in hand and and there's actually a this is a small point, but uh, at, at the beginning of the the podcast you mentioned uh, people committing suicide and so I just want to bring up this point uh, similar to how we've changed we're moving away from PTSD and referring to PTSI in the same way we want to get away from talking about committing suicide you know that that's sort of a, an antiquated term that's that's from the the days when when suicide was against the law.
0: yeah, we didn't talk and, about anything. Uh, you're right.
1: And and like nobody commits to dying of cancer. You know, it's like it's, it's that same thing. So so if, if we can lower the stigma by, by talking about it um, a slightly different way, like rather than committing suicide, they suicided, they killed themselves. Like there's uh, other ways to address it. it and, and it's a small nomenclature thing. And some people will tell you that Meh, it doesn't mean anything. But there are people that will, it's really important, L- just like with with ptsi right so when somebody's at risk of suicide one one of the things that that people should know is that um very often they're not sure about the decision to die they're not sure about the decision to to kill themselves and that's where asking that question just opens up that conversation asking them if they're thinking about suicide so they can say yes that doesn't mean that they they're committed to dying Right, and and so there's there actually a really interesting documentary uh, called The Bridge, and it was a film crew that filmed uh, filmed the Golden Gate Bridge 24 hours a day for a year, and in that time, I think they filmed 25 suicides uh, of people jumping off the bridge, and th- they also saved a lot of people too. If they thought they saw somebody at risk, they would get um, intervention folks out there quickly. Uh, but one of the people that jumped within that recording survived. I think something like 3% of people survived that fall. And, but they, so they interviewed him afterwards. And what was interesting is that guy said, as soon as his hand left the bridge and he started falling, he instantly was like, no, wait, I can figure this out. I don't, this is not what I want to do. And that, that just gives you a really good insight into, into where somebody's mind is at. And right up until the, to the point of dying, people at risk of suicide, or people that want to suicide they're not sure about it, and there is something in there that wants them to live and that's what everyone I think that a, a I've key, often wondered that yeah, a key take home point that that people that are listening need to think about, and that's why asking that question is so important
0: and even- even as we we talk about this and it's probably a little bit less, but you know if you're a member, firefighter. Um, it doesn 't matter uh, man or woman there 's nothing wrong with approaching somebody you trust to open that conversation on your own. You do not have to wait to be asked or or get to the um, get to the point where the kind of the crisis is taking over it 's okay to ask and have you? Have you had i mean people know what you do they know they know that um, you've put the study and you've put the training H- have Have you been able um, as a local to see some of the brothers and sisters make the approach as opposed to um, having you come and start a conversation
1: yeah we we have seen that shift and I, and and while I would like to take credit for it from the program that we have i, I that, that may be part to do with it, but I think also we have the younger generation, I think is more open to the idea of having the conversation is a, a big part of it too. We actually, uh, we hired, a, our own clinical psychologist, um, about two years ago. And, and he, he talks about his experience coming on board. And at first everyone was standoffish and who's this guy. And, and, um, and he, he, he actually first started just doing ride-alongs with us. Um, he's actually a, a college professor in, in the psychology department for Cal Lutheran uh, University. We have a, a partnership with their psychology department. And so our members can go and get uh, free counseling sessions or cash-only counseling sessions in Oxnard at, at a little nondescript place if they want to go there. But he just started doing ride-alongs with us. And, and when we were like, we really need a clinical psychologist, we ended up um, bringing uh, Ryan, Ryan Sharma on board. And, uh, but he talks about how uh, there was a palpable change where the membership started to uh, trust him. And now he'll show up at department events. He showed up at a, a firefighter of the year ceremony a, a while back. And uh, people coming up to him say, Hey, doc, I really need to come in and speak to you. And so there, there has been that shift where we have had people that will reach out and
0: get assistance. So there's, there's a, a much deeper awareness among the members of Local 1684. They're, yes. Yes. yes so and and the so. other one, I'm going to make an assumption, but you can answer it for me. Labor and management are, are working together as a committee on behavioral health. In, in the Oxnard Fire Department. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm right with that or close to it. Yeah, absolutely. And and
1: well, I I actually I obviously start on the Labor side of this conversation. Um, at the time, we we didn't have um, a great buy-in on the management side. I, I should say the vast majority of the management were, were uh, in agreement and in lockstep with us. Um, now I'm on the management side, and and we have a very close relationship with our Labor group. And, and I think that's critically important. And I know in, in helping the locals and sort of go, going through some of the issues, uh, confidentiality is always a huge deal. And, and when it comes to suicide, you can never promise confidentiality, but you can promise discretion. And we can do things with a level of discretion. Uh, I know one of the things from the management side—they're always worried about. Well, what if a what if a peer or a a suicide interventionist finds out about a policy violation? And my response is, I don't really care. To be perfectly frank, I don't like. I'm I'm not interested in the policy violation, particularly if it's because this person is at risk of of doing self harm. And so, but. that that is as a management group that that's a difficult uh, a difficult thing to deal with, and so but but being able to provide some from d- discretion confidentiality where you can
0: absolutely need to need to keep that to yourself. So right, it um, you, you kind of you did stress it. It is it is very important that labor management have a working group, a working committee on behavioral health, and and where to go with it it sounds very much to me like, um, Oxnard, um, the local and the fire department have really worked, um, together in, into a spot where, where they have success. Um, Coming up in September, we've, you know, a Suicide Awareness Month, um, CPF and the Cal Chiefs, um, we're working with CalJack and OES um, to reach out to, to departments and hold um, a safety stand down, and it'll be for behavioral health and suicide awareness, and I kind of want to talk about um, the importance of that and the importance for our members during that week to... To really have some tabletop drills, and I mean, we've all we've been firefighters, been company officers, we can get very creative. How important do you think that that is for a department, an engine company, a truck company, medic company to actively participate in that, and and really the the role that a company officer should play there? Yeah,
1: I, uh, I. I actually, uh, I, I've seen some of the materials that that um, that you guys are developing for the safety stand down, and and so I am I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, that it will create some some really meaningful conversations. But yeah, as as company officers, or as the informal leaders within a station or within a crew, um, being able to sit around the kitchen table and just having an open and honest dialogue, you know, it's 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 one of those things that that as firefighters we like to mess with each other. You know, we like to to mess around, whatever you want to call it. But, but then there needs to be uh, times where you can just sit and, and have a real conversation and let maybe even some real feelings out or, or some real experiences out. And, and I, I would implore the, the, the company officers, the informal leaders to really create an environment where that conversation can happen. and, Around the kitchen table is just—it's it, a—it's a great place to do that. And so, hopefully, they um, some of the materials that are coming out will will help facilitate those conversations, and so that uh, people feel open enough to talk. And and one thing to keep in mind though is, you know, we when our peers go out to the fire stations, they can go for a visit four, five, six times before somebody will actually. Follow you out to the car on you on in the back lot of the fire fire station, and they'll actually, hey, so I've got this thing that I wanted to talk to you about. So they they may not all talk about uh, whatever it is going on within the safety stand down, but I think that there there is a lot of opportunity there for just like let's like leave the bravado to one side and. Just sit down and have a real conversation. If I can give a, a, another brief example, we uh, recently taught the the, uh, the three hour suicide awareness class to Santa Barbara City firefighters, and and so at the end of one of those classes, I remember there was a captain that came up to me and he said, "Do you know I, I, I realize now, like from from doing this, that um, I had somebody that was talking to me the other day." I think he had more to say and I dismissed the conversation. And so I need to go back and, and restart that conversation and see where it needs to go. Because oftentimes, you know, and it gets back to that thing about invitations, oftentimes people will, will throw up a little weather balloon or, or, or say something to try and introduce a difficult conversation. And if you're not open to it or you're not open to hearing it, They'll reel that thing back in, and they'll keep it back to themselves. And so, um, as leaders, as labor leaders, as uh, leaders within the firehouse, um, please like be open to those conversations because you can
0: make a huge difference. You said something earlier that that I really related to, and that as firefighters, the things we do, you know, in our home life, in our professional life, the things that we're involved in, we all kind of live in our own head. And I, w- I was thinking, as, as, as you said, you know, we go around in our own bubble and we think we're the only one. And I didn't learn differently than that until I left the line. And then I really realized that the men and women that I worked worked with were just like me. They had a lot of the um, the same anxieties, the same thoughts, the same fears, Um but the one thing we had in common is we didn't share anything with anybody because of all those fears, fitness for duty, my crew will think I'm crazy, they won't trust me, uh, they'll question my judgment. And that's not what this is about. And even, even just listening to the whole conversation and, and um, getting bits and pieces of the, the training that you've had, how critically important it is, even if it's not at that copy Coffee table to seek somebody out that you trust, and that um, you know is going to be willing to help. Yeah,
1: and it, and it doesn't need to be a peer. You know, we we have a fairly robust peer program for for Oxnard. It doesn't have to be a peer. Reach out. Like think about who your um, who your social support network is. You know, and and reach out somebody outside the fire service if that's what it needs to be. But but speak to people, and and if you can, please reach out. You know, it, it's. It's crit- critically important. And it's one of the things that like going through this, uh, developing our peer support program and, and going through the, the suicide intervention trainings and, and those kinds of things. One of the things I found myself is that um, early on, they, uh, they talked about like, if, 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 if your only resource and the only person that you would open up to is your spouse, you need a better support network. And that was my case. Uh, you know, I, I came from Australia, and so I didn't. I didn't have like friendships from high school and, and those kinds of things close. And so, so building that, I, I had to make a conscious effort to, and, and I, I still am building a, a support network where I have folks that I can reach out to and have conversations with. And so that
0: that's something that, um, it's just good advice for right. all of us. One more piece of advice as we as we um, i didn't even want to close up there's so much to talk about yeah but as as we as a profession have really tried to open the doors to behavioral health and suicide suicide awareness we we've had many of our members come forward, both active um, and retired, and they've shared their stories, but we know that there's it's probably like an iceberg for the number of people that have come, come forward. There's probably twice as many that still suffer in silence. And, and for our members, our brothers and sisters that, that, that are there in that, that place that they're suffering in silence over this, what advice do you have for them? Uh, like I, I feel for them. You know, it's it's
1: it, it has got to be incredibly difficult if if they if they can't share and and all they would say is is take that first step. And again, if you don't have somebody that you feel comfortable reaching out to, call that same Suicide National Suicide Prevention Hotline. Uh, 1-800-273-TALK. Like those folks um, once again, for those of you writing it down, 1-800-273-TALK. But um, calling those people, like if you want to have an anonymous conversation, call them. And, and then you don't have to, um, you know, if, 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 if you don't feel like there's somebody you can reach out to, but, but keeping it to yourself, you can't get through it on your own sometimes and you need to reach out. And, and so uh, whoever that person is, do it, make it, make it your homework for, for uh, Suicide Prevention Month uh, to reach out.
0: Alex, I just, um, on behalf of all 30,000 members of the CPF, um, I want to thank you uh, for being here today, um, not only sharing your story, but sharing your knowledge and just your willingness to impart that. I know that we'll have more discussions down the road. And uh, I just thank you very, very much.
1: Uh, it's truly an honor to be here today. I, I really do appreciate it. Thank you.